As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. God could not be everywhere, so he created mothers. This adage could not ring more true when it comes to the life of C.J. Taylor. Her life story could be made into an Oscar-winning biopic, and believe me, it's just a matter of time. She is a divorced single mom of three, an attorney, and a football coach with over 20 years of experience. She is the first female coach in Snoop Dogg's Youth Football League, is the former director of football operations and assistant coach at Los Angeles Southwest College, and was a junior varsity head coach and assistant coach on the varsity team at Burbam Day High School, a private all-boys school in Southern California. She has generated more than $45 million, sending hundreds of student athletes to college on scholarships with over 300 NCAA programs, including with Marist College, University of Texas, TCU, Vanderbilt, FAMU, LSU, Cal State, Boise State, USC, UCLA, Notre Dame, Syracuse, and more. She has single-handedly raised three tremendously successful children. Her daughter, Mai Callian, is a California State licensed nurse who was on the front line during the COVID pandemic. Kylan is a 2017 Rhodes Scholar, 2014 Fulbright Scholar, D1 student athlete and graduate of Texas Christian University, graduate of Oxford University, a current PhD candidate, and the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, A Dream Too Big. And last but not least, Chase Moore, an Archer Fellow, Children's Defense Fund recipient, and a recent D1 student athlete at the University of Texas at Austin, a victor of the 2019 Sugar Bowl, and a member of the AFCA All-State Good Works team. Though this family has witnessed many glory days, life has not been easy. As written in an ESPN profile by senior writer Adam Rittenberg, CJ shares, we used to have a five-bath, four-bedroom house and seven vehicles. We had what looked like was the Cosby life. It was like a Monet. From a distance, it looked beautiful, but up close, it was all messed up. Inside those walls, CJ's now ex-husband, Lewis Moore, was psychologically abusive toward her. She saw him physically abuse Kylan, who was just two years old at the time. And in 2000, she left him, taking the children to live with her mother in Carson, on the border of Compton. She filed for divorce, but still feared for their safety. She always told her kids, we may live in the hood, but the hood doesn't live in us. In 2004, she went to the hospital for heart surgery and came back in even worse shape. She was assaulted while being sedated and later slipped into a depression. In 2009, her ex-husband was convicted of murder. He had a drunken argument with his girlfriend at the time and fatally shot her with a rifle. After weeks of her kids feeding her and bathing her and nursing her back to health, her middle child told her, 
get up, mom, we've got to live. You've got three kids and we need you. And that's exactly what she did. And she continues to give every bit of her soul to her children every single day. Today, I'm so honored to welcome CJ Taylor and Chase Moore to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having us on. I I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. CJ, your journey is truly worth being a film. And when audiences far and wide watch your story or read your story, you know, with popcorn in their laps, I'm going to be thinking about that first phone conversation that we had. For you, it's your day-to-day. It was a daily fight. You've chosen to be the victor of your story and not the victim. So I want to just backtrack to the beginning. And if you could just tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like. I actually had a very nice childhood, I believe. Both my parents were active and involved in my life. My parents met when my father was a student at Tennessee State. He was playing baseball and a scout took a look at him and asked him to be part of the Los Angeles Dodgers. So that's what brought him to California. And for my mom, she came to California with her twin sister to attend college on a GI Bill. And so they met, they married, they raised us, they moved us to a a relatively nice neighborhood that was a a pretty new area of the unincorporated area of California. I had typical friends like everyone else. I discovered Christ at a very early age. And by the age of 12, I walked my sisters and brothers to the closest church near our house to get baptized. Wow. And what was it like pursuing your career and going to college for you? In my family, particularly on my father's side, it's not, are you going to go to college when you graduate? The question is, which college are you going to when you graduate? And we've set that same standard for all of our children. Now it's not, which college are you graduating from? It's, which graduate program are you going into? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So my career, actually, it found me. I applied for a job. I got hired. And I worked in medical management for about 14 years. Wow. Okay. And did you always want to be a mom? No. That was actually the furthest thing from my mind at the time. I got out of college and I wanted to be a career woman. I knew that I wanted to work. I wanted to get my own apartment, my own independence, and really take care of myself and see what the world would offer me. And just so happens, I end up marrying. And immediately when I married, I said, okay, now I want to be a mom. Mm. And the main reason why I hadn't thought about it was because I was very selfish. I wanted to do me things. I was very me-oriented and didn't think that I had the capacity to love another human being until my first human being was born. And I was like, (laughs) oh my God, this world is so different and I love it. Yes, absolutely. So tell us what that, you know, journey through motherhood was like and three times over. My children are my greatest contribution to this world. I can honestly say that they grew up with a mother that was hands-on. And I think that was very important. Once I decided to actually be a mother, I felt that it was very important for me to give them the very, very best of me. So I literally poured everything inside of me into them. And they have exceeded even my wildest dreams. And we've seen all of this unfold in the press that we've watched. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see that they were raised um, by such a strong mother. 
What the world views as strength, I cannot deny. But for me, I don't look at what I do as strength. I look at it as what a mom is supposed to do, what a parent is supposed to do. These young children didn't ask to be bought into this world. It is our sole responsibility to nurture every fiber of their being, to make them the best human being, and not just to make them the best for themselves, but so that way they can serve humanity. Because I truly believe the greatest thing another person can do is to serve their own community. And as long as we're serving other people, then we're living and walking in our purpose and walking in our light. So every day that I was going through struggles, I didn't look at it as a personal struggle for me. I looked at it as what can I do to help raise a child that can make this world a better place than the one they inherited? Yes, yes. And you have done that. Were there any red flags that you found in your marriage early on that was a reason that you felt, you know, I, I got to move on and, and get out of this? There were some red flags, but I chose to not ignore them, but excuse them or justify them. Mm. For example, when there was an issue of him saying to me, you don't need to speak to those friends or you don't need to speak to those family members. I viewed that as him being overprotective. Or when he said that I shouldn't go someplace, I looked at it and viewed it as him being concerned about my safety. So I I, I take um, responsibility for my errors, too, because I felt that as a wife, it was my duty to protect my husband and for us to put up a united front to the rest of the world, that we should be a strong couple. So what was going on inside of the house is what I endured. Because as mm. long as we had a strong front to the public, that was my top priority because under no circumstance did I want him to look bad or us to look bad as a couple. So I fought really hard to hold up that facade. Right, right. What was it like when you know you were like, you know what, I'm done, chapter closed, and you moved out? I'd come to the realization that there is nothing that you can do to help someone to save themselves. They have to want to do that for themselves. It was important to me that my children saw what true love looked like. I felt that it was better for them to see one parent that loved them with her very being than it was to have two parents that could not exhibit love at all. And it became a no-brainer for me. I had to leave. Right. Yeah. And I'm so glad you made that choice. When you moved to the city, uh, you you and the family found yourselves in a very different situation. You were living paycheck to paycheck at times and could only feed them, you know, one or two meals a day. And, you know, in in the articles I've read and interviews that I've watched, um, you mentioned that there were times you had no hot water and there were gangbangers living in the neighborhood. And Kylan mentioned on an interview that once there are times where when he felt hungry, he'd actually do push-ups to feel the pain in his arms instead of his stomach. So I want to actually turn the interview to Chase now and ask him, do you remember those times? And do you actually remember the pain or the struggle? Or do you actually have fond memories and overlook all that? Yeah, that's actually a great question. I had fond memories. I understood that we lived in a certain neighborhood and there would sometimes be gang members around. Sometimes we would hear helicopters at night times or other things like that. 
But for the most part, I'll say I didn't really understand our economic situation growing up because all we did as kids is just play outside, mm -hmm. uh, play basketball, you know, toss the water balloons, uh, just have like this normal lifestyle or whatever. Sometimes I would realize that some things that my neighbors might have had, like being able to go on the typical summer family vacation or other things like that, that wasn't necessarily our reality. So what did that allow us to do? It allowed us to build a bond and be uh, close as family members. So although my mom might not have been a multimillionaire, we couldn't replicate that lifestyle. It is what it is. However, she found creative and innovative ways to allow us to have great fond memories and kind of uh, be beyond just what our neighborhood is. So my mom would go to local parks, local museums, uh, local jazz festivals, Ooh. and she found ways to give us culture and to give us perspective. And we learned that uh, it doesn't matter about the amount of money you have. It just matters about the amount of curiosity that you had. So although there were uh, situations which one would consider abject at times, I'll say all in all, um, mom had a great spirit and she made the most of whatever our situation was. Oh my goodness. That is such sage advice coming from a young adult. And it's just, my heart wells up to hear a young man like you share that with us. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And let me also say this. Uh, this is something I used to say when I was uh, younger, that mm -hmm. um, I have the richest family in the world. All we don't have is money. And I truly, <laughs> truly believe that because we've had some very rich experiences where in that green 1992 Ford Explorer, my brother, my sister, and my mom, we've been some places that we've yeah. seen a lot but we've done it together. And that's, that's what was so most fun. powerful about that. Yes, yes. Oh my goodness. And I can almost visualize that. That's amazing. And tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up with your siblings. It was cool. It was cool. We did everything together. Thick as thieves. Uh, my <laughs> father wasn't around like that. So we just found ways to integrate life, but together. For instance, um, the father figure role was absent in my life. And my mom understood that as an impressionable man who's growing up in the inner city area, being that she's parenting two African-American males, she understands that there are certain things that she can't teach us, no matter how hard she tries. Right. So she put us into football. And when we got introduced to playing football, we were surrounded by a lot of positive male role models and male figures in our lives. And my sister was also able to participate in that as a cheerleader and eventually as a cheer coach. Um, when we were playing in the Snoop Youth Football League. And it was just a really cool opportunity. So we just did a lot of really cool things together. I've had some very fond memories together. There was also times when my mom would take us to the snow. A lot of people don't know if it snows or not in California, but it does from time to time. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's this area that we would go to called Wrightwood. And it might be three, maybe four hours from Southern California or from where we grew up, essentially. But it was a really nice moment where we would go there. Sometimes my mom would take my cousins as well, and we would just throw snowballs and drink hot cocoa and just have a good old time. So I've had a lot of those types of memories with my siblings. That's wonderful. Wow. CJ, I wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, your tenacity and resilience is even more so because, you know, you've shared how you have illnesses like diabetes, you've had cardiomyopathy, sickle cell anemia, you know, and so you're suffering through this and um, are on medications to stabilize it, but you still have this inner strength that is like insurmountable. So d tell us what your day-to-day -day is like with that. Actually, outside of taking a whole lot of medication, I wouldn't know the difference. 
I wake up in the morning, I say my prayers, and I thank God for giving me another day. Then I go on. Sometimes I get so busy in my day that I forget to take my medication. And Chase gets mad at me for that. Um, <laughs> because when, when Chase was home before he went off to college, his sole responsibility was to make sure I took my medications because he knows that sometimes this energy that I have feels so overwhelming that I just keep going and going and going and I forget to eat. And if I don't take, if I don't eat, then I can't take my medication. And if I don't take my medication, then I'll get sick. And he'll see me on a day and see me move kind of slow. And he'll say, well, Chase, you tell it. What would you say to me? How do you handle me? (laughs) Man, oh, you put me through some situations. I just understand that you have a few health issues that are very critical and very important. And if you love what you love, um, you don't want to die for it. You want to fight so you can live another day for it. So I'm constantly on you about taking your medicine, hopefully, so you don't have to do that for the rest of your life. So growing up, I would always gather up her medicines. I already knew what it was for, whether it be for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, whether it be for sickle cell, whether it be for iron deficiency, whether it be from psychological issues. Like I just knew what medicine she needed and when she needed to to take it. And I was kind of consistently on her and mom, did you eat? Or I I see your eyes, they're dilated. Your blood sugar is low. Like, so I just kind of would always be on her about that. Almost like a pseudo doctor, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mom, you shouldn't be drinking Dr. Pepper. Let's drink some water. I'll put some cucumbers in it to make it taste better. So just like little things like that, because I understand her health is important. I want her to be able to see my children one day. Yes, yes. Oh, that's so sweet. And it's nice that you all lean on each other, you know, um, and fill the gaps where they're where they're there. Uh, CJ, I wanted to ask you if you can describe your kids and their personalities to me, because it just it's that much more heartwarming hearing it coming from a mom. My my daughter, she's the firstborn. And she's strong. She's so strong. But she's also very loving and very giving. And she will do anything for you. She's not only is she strong, she's very, I would say, analytical. She will weigh things out first. And then instead of discussing what's right or wrong, she'll just come up at the with an end of the answer. That's like sometimes with women. We go around this, a circle and telling a man, well, this is what we wanted. And she's not that person. She's more, she thinks more, process is more like a man because she goes straight to it. She's like, this is the answer. This is what you need to do. But her heart is so big. She's so compassionate. There's nothing that she will not do for her siblings, nothing that she won't do for me, even if it means that she needs to sacrifice herself. So for me, that part of her reminds me of me. And I really think that she has the very best qualities of her father and the best qualities of me all poured into her. And as a result, she went into nursing. That's right. And uh, you told me that she's on the front line right now um, and she's you know, tested positive cases for COVID-19. And tell us how she, when she comes home, what... <laughs> What happens because she has a young daughter. Maya's always been a a germaphobe. So she's always carried sanitizers and things of that nature. She touches things with napkins. That's just her personality. 
And now with her job and with this pandemic that we're going through, half of her shift, three days a week, she's outside actually screening patients before they go into the urgent care facility to see if they have signs and symptoms of COVID. If she diagnoses that they may have COVID, she sends them one place. If she sees that um, it looks like they don't have any active symptoms, then she allows them to go in and get the regular care that they need. And her facility is very important because it serves an underserved community. They serve a lot of homeless people and a lot of people that don't get the medical care that they need to begin with because they're uninsured. And what she does, though, is as soon as she gets home, she stops at the door. She places her scrubs inside of a plastic bag with her PPEs. She runs into the shower and she bathes herself. And then, then after she comes out, then she'll say hi to me and hi to, her, hi to the baby because she wants to make sure she knows that my health is um, critical. So she right. wants to make sure I don't get sick. And then the baby being young, she wants to make sure she doesn't pass it off. And then her day starts all over again. And I see how she does it every single day. She doesn't complain about it. She shows up every day. She's amazing. Wow. Wow. And she was your um, eldest, right? Yes, she is. Okay. Yeah. I like to call her my firstborn. Right. (laughs) I I say my firstborn, my little child, and then the baby. I call him the baby. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I have three and it's actually the exact same. I have, well, I have boy girl twins. My son, Chris, was born two minutes before Suhana. And then my third is a boy, Shrey. Oh. Um, yeah. So I, so I know what girl. it's like. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And she's she's not my first. She's in the middle. But yeah, I know what it's like to have, you know, a strong-willed girl and her two brothers. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's yes. the best. It's, I love watching it. And now tell us about Kylan. Kylan was my model child. And I call him a model child because he never wavered to the left or to the right. He was He's always been a straight arrow. Anything that I've asked him to do, that's exactly what he's done. I recall when he was in kindergarten, the teacher um, told them to go home and do their homework at home. Well, at that time, they were going to daycare after he got out of school. So when he was at the daycare, he they told him to do his homework. I pick him up from daycare, bring him home, and he's kind of solemn when we when we're in the car. When we get home, I'm like, "Baby, what's wrong with you? What's wrong?" He said, "My teacher told me to do my homework at home." I said, "Okay, baby. Well, let's go ahead and take out your homework and do your homework." Then he said, "No, I don't have any homework to do at home because I did it at the daycare." Oh. So he was, he was in such a fret. Yes. Today, I went out and purchased a computer so that way I could make homework for him at home. Wow. And he would do his homework at home that I created for him and he would turn it into school and he would be just as proud because he was happy because the teacher told him to do it at home and he did it at home. The preschool told him to do it at preschool. He did it there. So he was always that straight arrow. He never wavered. He did exactly what I asked him to do. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I want to just touch upon the prestige that he's earned in his um, career as a student and beyond. When he won the Rhodes Scholarship, only 32 students in the U.S. are selected for this honor and to be Rhodes Scholars. Same thing for Fulbright, extremely competitive. Only 1,900 U.S. students are considered Fulbright Scholars. So he is truly working against the odds and is a standout. And so how did he achieve 
that in addition to football, which we're going to get to. Opportunity. As he tells it, he was on campus at Marist and he asked them, did they have any opportunities that were available for him? And he was introduced to the Fulbright and he applied for it and he won it, of course. And with the roads, it had always been a quiet dream of mine back from when he was in middle school that he would one day win a Rhodes. Wow. And I'm going to put my dream out into the universe and see when it happens. I have a dream that one of my three will one day win a Nobel Peace Prize. And I'm putting it out there now and I, I can see that actually happening yes chase is here (laughs) maybe that's all you (laughs) i I think so i think that nobel is for chase yes definitely do i'm looking forward to speaking about him too a couple of weeks before the road scholarship I reminded Kyla and I said, Kyla, you need to apply for the roads. And I sent him the link. I said, here's the here's the link to the application. And he said, OK, mom, I'll do it. I'll get to it. And then two or three days before the due date, I'm like, well, how far along are you? Have you completed it? I want to see your application. Oh, mom, I forgot. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, you need to do this and get this in right now. This is yours. And he got it in maybe 10 minutes before it was actually due. And then we prayed over it together and I claimed it and said that this will be yours. That is incredible. I mean, and honestly, it's like you have this power about you that whatever you will to happen manifests. We all have it. It it makes perfect mom sense. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. We just have to tap into it. We have to believe in it. We are a lot, as mothers, we're a lot greater than our biggest fears. Mm -hmm. We have to believe it. We have to accept it and we have to move on it. We should only be limited by our own dreams, not allow anyone else to limit us of where we can go and what we can do. And if we can dream it, truly, we can achieve it. And if we don't, look at all the wonderful lessons that we gained in the process of trying. We still win. Absolutely. Absolutely. The level of growth when you really have your heart set on something is immeasurable. Now let's hear about Chase. The one takeaway with Chase for me as his mom, and I'll try not to get emotional. He has the purest heart and most beautiful spirit of any person walking on the universe. One day on campus at UT, he saw a turtle that was away from the pond. The pond was quite a distance away from where the turtle was and he knew where the turtle should be. He picked up a turtle, a big turtle, and carried it all the way across campus to put it back in the pond. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Who does that? Yeah. Who does that? Yeah. And when Chase was in kindergarten and he was in first grade, the school district was trying to diagnose him with ADD, ADHD, or say that he had a learning disability. And I was concerned because my baby was going into the second grade and he couldn't read. I tried phonics. I tried flip cards. I did everything that I could. But what I would not let them do was diagnose him as educationally handicapped. I wouldn't let them do that. I said he just needs time. Each child works at their own pace. With his second grade teacher a week or so before school was starting, and I came to her. She asked me, how's my child? And I, and I told her about his personality traits. And then she said, well, how is he with reading? That's when I broke down and I literally was in tears with his teacher. And I said, my baby can't read. I kept it 100% with her. 
tears streaming down my eyes. She asked him to point out a couple of alphabet. He was able to point out all of his ABCs. Mm -hmm. He was able to sound out all the letters. And she said, he just hasn't been taught. I said, he's in the second grade. I've had him at this school his entire academic career. What do you mean he hasn't been taught? She said he hasn't been taught, but eh, don't worry about it. I'll teach him. She taught my babe how to read. And to this day, each time I see her or speak with her, we reflect on the moment that I came to her crying because my child couldn't read. And look at him now. I mean, he's just completed his first year of graduate school. So we're talking about a kid that couldn't read. And not only that, Chase was a bit of a behavioral problem for me. And I don't know if because he was the youngest child, I don't know if it was the kids that he was around, but when he was in middle school, I was at that school almost every single day, meeting with counselors, meeting with deans, meeting with peers, meeting with the principal, because he was acting out. There was one just after Halloween, I guess, for for Halloween, he was a a Dracula, so he had a cape. Mm -hmm. Then following week, I received a telephone call from the counselor. And she said, you need to get up here right now. We're ready to suspend him. We're putting him out of class. I race up there. What's going on? What's going on? And she said that he bought a cape to school. He had the cape on and he was standing on top of the desk and he was jumping from one desk to the other and telling everybody in the class that he was crack man. Okay. <laughs> he was crack man. Where did where did you come up with that, Chase? Do you remember? Oh man, I don't know. I was I was going through a lot of stuff during that time in life. Yeah. And I wanted to be kind of the class clown because I, I didn't know my identity really. And I wanted to fit in. And that's maybe we'll get to this a little bit later. But that is kind of after like my father's decision uh, right. that happened. I took that a really rough way. Yeah. So I out of school. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's completely valid to just be seeking attention, especially as a child, you know. And, and, and keep in mind, he acted up bad. The kid was pulling A's. He had the grades. That last year in the eighth grade, I fought so hard to see to it that he didn't get kicked out. He had a chance one day where he came home and he was bragging to me about a friend of his bringing a gun to school. That's another time where I lost it. I said, what's his name? And Chase was like, Mom, it's really no big deal. Oh, it was very much a big deal to me because I went up to the school the next day and said, hey, this is the kid. This kid is carrying a gun. This gun can go off. This kid can kill somebody. And Chase was mad at me for, for having done that oh, at that time. What, what What's your impression of me from having done that? It just shows a lot of my growth uh, from my perspective of thinking that it's not that big a deal to like, dang, man, that's a big deal. So it, uh, it just shows that you're actually really invested and you really care. And unfortunately, uh, not everyone's parents, I could say the same, that were yep. you know, in that circumstance. Yeah, that's true. It's so true. I, I mean, I wanted to touch on how Chase, you in high school earned a 4.0 while playing football. So you were putting hours, you know, at home, at your desk and on the field. So what was that like? Yeah, that actually happened really simply. Um, I didn't have a 4.0 throughout high school, but there Mm -hmm. were a few semesters where I did pull a 4.0. For the majority of my career, for sure, I had straight A's. And the reason that that was able to manifest in the way that it did is because I remember in high school, I was the type of kid a week or maybe two weeks before school, when I get my uh, list of teachers I'm going to have, I would email them. Hello, Mr. Jovell. Hello, Mr. Starnes. This is where I grew up. Uh, This is what I'm about. 
And I'd like to know right now, um, what do you need me to do in order to get an A into your, A in your class and allow them to like kind of get insight as to how dedicated I am. And I understand that grades are not everything, but as a young impressionable man who may not have a lot of material possessions, I always took pride in what I did. I knew I could control two things, my behavior and my grades. So I took it upon myself to take mastery in what I could produce intellectually. And that has been able to come on throughout high school, as well, I mean, throughout college as well. I remember when I first came to UT, I was a sociology major for my undergraduate years. And it was the first week of school where our teacher gave us an assignment. And it was a pretty rigorous assignment. I'm not going to lie. It was challenging. And then the teacher had a fast turnaround and she returned the grades. And it was on a Friday when I saw the grade. That same day, I was in the library until the library closed at around 10 o'clock. And I was emailing the teacher asking what I can do to improve my grade. And I remember in the subject of that email, it said, chase more in danger of failing. If you'd like to know what I got on the assignment, I actually got a 96 on it. But it was just like my <laughs> mentality because I understood that uh, I was supposed to get 100% and I didn't achieve that goal. So in my head, I failed it. And through showing how much I really cared, even if it was trivial at the time, it allowed me to get the grade that I thought I was capable of getting in that class. And that perspective certainly developed in high school, as my mom alluded to earlier. I was a problem child, what you would consider maybe a push out. Um, I was a bad student, bad student. But then I came to a Catholic school, an all boys private school in inner city, Los Angeles, California. And it's in a rough community. Uh, people here of Compton or Carson, that's, that's nothing compared to Watts. The situations and the things that go on there um, are nothing to play with. And that's kind of why I do the work I do to improve those situations and make it more equitable. But anyways, the school that I went to, I would consider it a diamond in the rough because mm. although it's next to the largest housing projects west of the Mississippi River, although there's literally gunshots that you hear at times, although there's, as we call them back home, ghetto birds or helicopters hovering over our school, there is so much beauty in that place. And there's so much intellectual and social capital where the teachers truly invested and they truly cared for us. So I couldn't disappoint uh, a Mr. Willis who uh, sees that I'm more than an inner city young man. He sees me to be a great person. Uh, so he allowed me to be a student ambassador at the age of 14 at this high school. And it taught me how to kind of tell my story and, you know, how to make sure I'm an upstanding young man. And I kind of liked how that felt because we would go and we would speak at middle schools and elementary schools and kind of recruit them through telling our story and letting the young children know that they can be like us and be better than us. And as a result of that feeling I got, of giving back to my community, no matter how small it was at the time, it let me know that I want to be the best young man that I can possibly be. And at my high school, we had to wear a shirt and a tie, almost dressed like businessmen. So I decided that for the rest of my life, I'll conduct myself as a businessman or be professional or however you want to call it, but just try to be an upstanding young man. And it's kind of carried me. And in terms of the football piece connected with my academic, I just understood that I don't want to be like a light switch where when I turn it on, you know, I'm ready to go, but I turn it off and then there's nothing there anymore and there's no light. I kind of want that light switch to always be on because I believe that who you are off the field is going to also determine what type of father you are. It's going to uh, determine what type of relationship you have with your wife. It's going to determine all sorts of things. So I just want to be excellent in every capacity that I can. So that was able to happen. And that's what got me here. Really. Wow. CJ, I mean, I am beaming with pride right now. I know you are, you have to be, look at this young man. I mean, wow. Wow. 
You are something else, Chase. I cannot, I've never, ever, ever, ever met anyone like you. And, Thank you. and at this age, it's so beautiful to see. Thank you. All I'm going to say is I made a lot of mistakes in my life. My siblings, they kind of grew up a little differently, especially mm-hmm. education-wise, uh, because all I knew was the inner city public school education. My siblings, they attended greater schools um, when they were a little bit younger. So they didn't have the go to the second grade, not know how to read or go to right. the school with dictionaries are so old. They don't even say the word computer. Mm. So it was just a little different for me. But yeah. it's, it's just that I, I learned a little bit from my mistakes, I guess. But I made yeah. a whole lot of mistakes. No, I mean, but you've grown tenfold from that. CJ, you've led by example. You have two master's degrees and a JD. And so, you know, how were you able to juggle that? When I was an undergrad, I went straight to graduate school. So that was easy because I didn't have any kids. Mm-hmm. But the Juris Doctorate and the Masters uh, the, the masters in Theology was a lot harder because by then I was the mother of three. I was going through a divorce. I was driving 75 miles one direction, 45 back to school, 75 back home every day. So that was tedious. But I kept my eyes on the prize. Right. I understood what I was doing it for. I wanted to place myself at that time in a financial position where I could take care of my children, where we could be comfortable in life and not have to worry. The The problem with that came was after I graduated law school and then began working in law firms, I was putting in 12, sometimes 14 hours a day, six days a week. And I wasn't putting in a lot of time with my children. I had great child care for them. I had a babysitter that lived right down the street from me. So I was able to drop them off at her house. She would feed them breakfast in the morning, take them to school, pick them up from school, feed them snack, do homework with them, feed them dinner. And then I'd come pick them up, bring them home in time to bathe them and say goodnight. I realized my quality of life had waned because I had no quality of time with my children. Mm -hmm. So part of the economic impact is that I had to make a decision of what was more important, making money to take care of my kids or making less money and being a hands-on parent and placing myself in a position that if my kid called and said, hey, I got a headache, I could be there at the school. And I don't have the best economic life, but I have a rich, wealthy life because I have been able to be that hands-on parent for my children. And um, I don't regret any part of that. I was a very protective mom of my children. Um, I had a, a big philosophy of we move as one unit. Where one goes, we all go. And if and if we all couldn't come, then nobody's going to come. And Kylan was probably in the fifth grade at the time. He'd had a little popularity. He had friends that were playing football. He was getting himself ready to play football. And he had a friend that was having a party. And he asked me if he could go to it. And I, I was like, well, I don't know. Can you bring your brother and your sister with you? And he's like, no, mom, I can't bring them with me. Okay, well, who's the kid? And he told me who the kid was. And the kid's father is an entertainer. He was in a, a hip hop group at that time, popular one. And so I said, well, let me speak to the parents and um, I'll let you know. So I spoke with the parents and it seemed like everything was going to be OK. So I told Kylan, yeah, you can go to the party. And it was a it was an afternoon to evening party. So mm-hmm. I took him to the party at about three, about three o'clock or so. And he goes inside of the party and he's there for a while. And then after an hour, 
shower, he calls me and he says, mom, can you come and pick me up? This is really not my scene. I'm, I'm ready to go home. I said, sure. I'm parked out front. Come on out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. You just knew. You knew. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. That's your mom's yeah. sense right there. You just knew what yeah. was up. I was like, my child really wants to be at this party. I really don't want to let him down. He can stay there, but I'm going to sit here in the car and read a book. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Well played. And then um, the other story, if you can share. One day, Kyla and Chase, they wanted to go outside and play. And they told me, they were like, Mom, there's some, some game bangers outside. They're sitting on the fence across from the house. And I said, oh, okay. Hmm. Let me go take a look at them. So I looked out and I saw three guys sitting there. So I walked across to them, walked across the street to speak to them. I said, hey, um, who's your people? They said, what? I said, who's your people? I want to know where do you guys live? Who's your people? Mm -hmm. And um, they wouldn't necessarily tell me who their people were. So I was telling them, like, one, I know his name. I said, oh, you belong to. And I said the name of the family he belongs to. And the other one, I said, what's your name? And he told me what his first name was and his last name was. And I said, wait, you're a Wills? He said, yeah. I said, are you the grandson of Lucille and Roy Wills? He said, yeah, I am. I said, you know what? I'm the lady that helped your grandparents when you were getting kicked out of LA Unified School District. And I stopped it. I'm I'm the attorney that handled the case. I handled legal work for your grandmother and your grandfather. And he said, oh my God. Oh, I, I know. I know what you did. I know what you did. And so he was really amicable to that. And I said, let me explain something to you. You see these two right here? They belong to me. I don't want you, you, you or anybody else over here saying anything to them. Because if you have a problem with them, you have a problem with me because I'm the biggest gangbanger in this neighborhood. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. The fight that you had is just it's incredible. I love it. I I can tell you now I will fight a bear with a chainsaw to protect my children. Yes. I really will. Yes. Won't I, <laughs> I feel sorry for the bear. <laughs> That's awesome. Now tell us about how football came about. Well, as I often say, football gave us life. It gave us a purpose. It gave us an opportunity to function with with other people. It provided male role models and mentorship. My sons participated in a program called MIT. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the fundamentals of, of what was going on there. It was it was it was family oriented, and it was something that took up a lot of our productive time. But we were doing something productive. But the unique thing that I saw about it, where I became more invested in it, was that the stories of the kids that were there. We had some kids, man, some kids that were living in homeless shelters, some kids who mothers were hustlers or or street walkers, kids that were in foster care, kids that were wards of the court. And football in the Snoop League was the one place where everybody was equal. It didn't matter what your background was. What mattered was what side of the ball you were on and which uniform you were in. Mm -hmm. I saw it as a great equalizer. And I saw it as a way to, a vehicle to use for community outreach. We established a, a meal program. We established tutoring. Uh, we partnered with LAPD to take them to baseball games and things of that nature. So I saw it. It started off as football, but it became something a lot bigger than that. And I realized with football coaching, by the time I got to high school, that 
it's football, but it's a lot bigger than that because I saw it as an educational opportunity for kids from underserved communities that otherwise would not go to college. Football was simply a vehicle to get them in the door, to get them out of the inner city, to expose them to a different world, a different lifestyle, to allow them to wake up in the morning to decide for themselves exactly what their value was. So I saw it as a bridgeway into getting into education. Now I see football and my philosophy is that we are more than four quarters, playing four quarters of a game and that's it. Four quarters of a game in one week should not define who you are, what your options are and what you can do with your life. You're a lot more than four quarters. Yes. Okay. So you went from you know, a mom who was encouraging her kids to be involved with the game and then transitioned to coaching. In terms of coaching, it was natural to me. I have a philosophy that coaching is teaching and the first teacher of a child is the mother. So I didn't go into coaching to try and be a dad or to compete with men. It's just natural. I'm raising two sons. My sons are playing this sport. I need to be on top of what's going on in the sport. So when my children ask me, mom, can you help me? I place myself in a position to be able to help. And I had the ability to communicate with other children. I had the ability to communicate what was going on with the sport to a mother that didn't understand why her child was sitting on the bench, why her child was not in, in the game. I had an effective way to be able to communicate with people from the youngest person playing on the field to the oldest grandparents sitting in the stand to give them an understanding. And it's really interesting because then I went on to coach Chase in high school. (laughs) I I coached his high school program for about 10 years. I coached before he got there, while he was there, and long after he was gone. And from there, I I was sought to work at a local community college in Los Angeles and bring my recruiting, my coaching techniques, and just my um, organizational skills to a a program. Yes. And Chase, what was it like having your mom be your coach? Man, uh, it was cool. It was cool. Um, I want to say that sometimes we hear this term toxic masculinity, or we think of football as a hyper-masculine type of sport where you have a group of like people just jacked up off of testosterone and kind of measuring up to who can be more masculine. Then there's kind of where my mom comes in, where she is capable of doing the exact same thing in terms of the instruction and the mentorship and the actual authentic care, but from a female perspective, which is very important. And not only a female perspective, but a female perspective who has children as well, who's a mother. And that doesn't often happen um, in the sport of football, especially at a high school varsity uh, collegiate level with someone with that type of experience. So my mom was just coming from a total different framework where she wasn't trying to assume a masculine posture. She was being herself. She was still um, dress up uh, in her makeup um, at our football games in high school and stuff like that, looking very uh, elegant, but also very professional at the same time. And she would be uh, conducting our stats in addition to coordinating what plays should happen next and stuff like that. Super enthused, super engaged into what's going on. And it was really awesome because I know she's my mom. She knows I'm her child. But if you didn't really know me, then you wouldn't even know. Like wow. that's kind of how it was. So my teammates... Um, before 
we got fully introduced and stuff like that in high school, they would just be like, who's that right there or something like that. Then I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's Coach CJ. And then uh, an elder would be like, oh, yeah, that's Coach CJ. You had to give her respect. And uh, she kind of had a mutual understanding and a mutual respect. And it was Mm -hmm. so cool when we're on the field in high school because I'll be making a play or doing something really good. And she couldn't just jump up in the stands like other parents. (laughs) Like, that's my baby. Like, she still was composed and like, all right, cool. Well, let's see what happens in the next play. Yes, yes. And I think that that's what your family has shown time and time again to just be against the odds. Uh, You know, Coach CJ, you have your eyes set on the NFL. Tell us about that. I do. I've paid my dues with over 20 years of coaching experience and having coached at every single level. I believe that there is still something that I can bring to an NFL team. For example, when I see a player injured on the field and they're placed right back into the game, I major on the minor things. I can look at a an athlete in his eyes and see that this kid is not okay. They need to sit out a play or two. And I'll say, hey, you, you know, call him by name, of course. And so you can sit over here. Then I'll take him to the side and whisper and say, baby, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Are you all right? You look like you need something. And that uh, that is how I will talk to them. And they'll be open with me and say, well, you know, I think I, I, think I might have twisted my ankle. I might have one or two more plays in me if I get taped up. What do you think? I say, okay, go over to the trainer, get taped up. I'll put you in for two more plays and then that's it. I'm going to call it. And they actually appreciate that somebody has enough empathy to see what a real injury is or or, a real hurt or a real pain. They'll be okay for the following week, but I'd rather rest you up for the rest of this game so I can use you in in the next Yes, yes. And there are times when players are going through something and they may not necessarily want to speak to my male counterparts, but they will share what it is that they're going through with me because they they respect me. I have so much respect. When I walk into a stadium, sometimes I feel like I'm at the Oscars because I'll walk through the stadium and I hear them yelling, Coach CJ, Coach <laughs> CJ. Well, I hear them yelling my name, just wanting me to turn it around and wave at them or, or acknowledge them. Wow. And, and Saturday afternoons are great for me because I'm able to look at college games and uh, on so many of these teams, I can say, oh, there's this kid here. I helped him get his education. I helped this one. I absolutely love it. So I believe that I can bring something to the NFL. And um, I had on one podcast, I was asked, what do I think I can tell these multi-million athletes? They're not going to want to listen to a woman. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, you know what? Everybody listens to their mother. Yes, exactly. I can't see why they would not listen to me, why, why they wouldn't, because for me to be able to coach in the NFL, number one, it says that I have talent. I have the ability. I have uh, leadership. I can communicate. I'm organized. And I, I didn't get here by accident. I have paid my dues. There are a lot of women that have strived for the NFL. Only a small handful are there. I take into consideration, too, that as women, it's okay for us to buy tickets, wear paraphernalia, be at games, spend our money yet not participate in the success of it. Mm -hmm. We are probably a 40% consumer of football. So we're we're bringing a lot of money to it. But then when you look at the coaches and how many women are actually in there that are coaching, we are not represented in that bottom line. 
And I'm not asking for somebody to give me anything. I'm not asking to be a handicap. What I'm asking for is to give me what I've earned. What I've earned is an opportunity to compete for a position in the NFL. Yes. And I think that you are so deserving. And, you know, you have this magic touch. You will will this into reality. I have no doubt. I wanted to now ask you some more philosophical questions. So firstly, you know, I am the product of immigrant parents and I feel that it's the adversity that was the driver for success in many of the immigrant families that I knew. Do you believe that adversity is what teaches you grit? I kind of think I was born this way. I know that there's a greater being than me. It's my, for me, it's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to live a life that's worthy to be called his child. I want to leave something in this world that I walked my walk in a way that would be pleasing to him. Mm. If adversity is what comes my way, then I take it and I take it gracefully. Jesus died on a cross. Adversity is a part of life. It's not what we go through, but it's how we go through it. And I just choose to be a winner. I choose to go through adversity with a smile on my face. I mean, failure is something that I'm simply not afraid of. I have failed many, many, many times. I've received many, many, many no's. I only need one yes to change my um, position in life. So I just keep pushing. I don't know. I don't know how to do anything else but to keep pushing, keep reventing myself. As I say, I don't stop until the coffin drop. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. And it's and that's something that's out of our control. But the fact that you you know to keep going until then is is just so commendable. As a follow up to that question. Kids these days, many of them feel entitled and they lack that tenacity. How do you think as parents, we can impress that upon them? Being ever present with your child, not letting other people influence your child and and giving your children a more simplistic life. They don't have to have every pair of Jordans that come out. They don't have to have all designer clothes. Take them to Kmart, take them to JCPenney's, teach them humility, teach them that they're fighting to wear one particular pair of shoes. And you've got kids in this world that literally have no shoes. Mm-hmm. And community service is very important. Take them with you to do community service. Be in service of others is the greatest gift that we can give to our mankind because it teaches you humility. Yes. And can you both share how you are activists in your community? Chase, you want to go first? All right, I'll go first. My mom, she was a member of a Greek organization in college, uh, Zeta Phi Beta uh, Sorority Incorporated, and it's very passionate about community service. It's one of its pillars. So my mom always instilled that you have to do to your community. If you're of that community, you have to do to it in some sort of way. So we would always follow her along with uh, her and our different peers that she'd be doing community service with and stuff like that. And that kind of carried on throughout high school where it was the pillar at my school to complete a certain amount of hours every Mm -hmm. single year. And we had an inner city school right next to my high school. And we kind of had a partnership with them where we were able to mentor the elementary school students that went there and also to tutor them. And from there, I was of the understanding that this feels good. And if more people did this, then it might be able to create a better world. So currently, I uh, produce educational policy activism 
I'm currently getting a master's degree in educational policy. And I'm of the understanding that if I'm learning these brilliant, great things in higher education, what does it do me if I can't produce this and show it to a larger audience? Mm -hmm. Because the people that I'm most passionate about, they might not have the fancy degrees. They might not have the fancy two letters in front of their name or whatever. It doesn't mean they're any less valuable to society, but it does mean that with great power comes great responsibility. So since I have the power and I have the platform, the positionality, it's only right for me to go back into my community and speak to these people and bridge this gap. So I'm very passionate about being able to provide more equitable futures for inner city students who don't come from the best of backgrounds. I understand that I had a journey and I grew up the way I did, but the goal for me is to make it so that somebody's tomorrow isn't as good as my yesterday was. So that's a very simplistic format for my activism. Amazing. Thank you. CJ? Oh boy. I think food insecurity, education have been big issues with me. And I noticed um, when I was with the high school, a lot of these kids were coming to football games and they had had no meals. So I implemented a hot meals program Mm -hmm. so that each day when they got out of practice, they would have a a hot meal which would consist of a meat, two vegetables, milk, and a, a bread or a grain. And those meals went a long way. They were meals that sometimes if they needed to take it home with them, they knew they were guaranteed to have a good meal at, at, at home. And even though I'm gone, I've, I've instilled that program and it's still going on even today. And so I'm feeding over 100 kids a day, six days a week. And then again, the educational component where I I learned through football, I learned how to get kids scholarships and how to get them into college. Mm -hmm. And I was able to broaden that, not just athletes, but now students in general. So I help students go to college for free. Incredible. I feel like you are paying it forward in so many ways because those students are going to want to, you know, give back because they they've received. Many of them do. They'll come out with me and they'll do community service. Many of them do give back. You don't have to wait until you're making a lot of money in order to give back. You can give back at whatever station in life you are right now. Most kids spend their spring break or their winter break having fun, hanging out. But Chase found a way to have fun and do something meaningful. He and a group of his friends and athletes, they went to Belize mm-hmm. on their own dime. And they uh, helped to refurbish the school. Oh, wow. That's how he spends his winter break. Right. They went on to Panama <laughs> and helped to build an all-purpose uh, sports center. Uh, He went to South Africa and he taught young people how to read. I mean, he's taken his platform to not just the inner city, but international. Tell us about your upcoming book. Let's see. Well, Kylan has a book called A Dream Too Big. It came out last year on June 4th, and it's a New York Times bestseller. But his book, as beautiful and as eloquent as it is, it covers roughly 2% of my contribution. And I do uh, speaking engagements. So I've had people ask me, what have you done to raise these phenomenal children? And I realized that for as much as what they are now, a lot of it came from my upbringing, how I grew up. So I talk about in the book, my background, how I grew up, how I parent, 
my inspiration, my relationship with God and how it inspires me to keep moving. And that my story, though it seems unique, it's the story of many, many women, many mothers, many sons, many daughters. It's a story that could be anybody's story and that no any one of them are unique. It just all happened to happen with me at one time. And that's what my book is about. What parenting advice do you have for mothers today? Hold on to your children. You be the best friend for them. You be the best advisor for them. You take them where they need to go. You pick them up. There's, it's impossible to, to overcovet your children. Yeah. You, are, you are their parent. You are in the best position to make decisions for your kids. Yes. Also, another thing is sometimes as parents, we do need to make sacrifices for ourselves because mm-hmm. these young people didn't ask us to bring them into this world. So we do need to be conscious of that. Make your child feel loved every single day. Affirm how beautiful they are. Affirm how intelligent they are. If you do that, then they won't go out into the world seeking affirmations. Exactly. How did you find that your mom's parenting style gave you a leg up and was so different from others that you witnessed? It was different because of how engaged she was. She was always at my school, even if it was for a bad reason, because I was cutting up in class or whatever. But she was just super engaged and she always knew what was going on at the school. And especially in my high school, she was there 24-7. Like she said, she instituted a meal program. She was always helping students. She was leading the booster clubs as being a parent and as being a coach, uh, making sure that parents are engaged with their students in every way possible. So she just was always there. And at the time, I used to not like it. It would kind of frustrate me sometimes when I would want to go to a party with my friends or I'd want to go hang out at my friends' houses or something like that. But she had a feeling in her spirit that now is not the time. Because she said earlier, we did everything as a unit. And she really stuck by that. So if I wanted to do something on my own, she wouldn't allow that to happen. At the time, I thought she was being mean or not being understanding. But in retrospect, it makes sense now. Yeah, She was super engaged. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that, you know, you are in Texas and she's still in California, she can just trust. She knows you're good. It comes from the child rearing. If you equip them with the values, then you're good. You know, your, your kids are fine on their own. When I spoke to you on the phone and watched all the videos you sent me and read the press articles, I mean, I just like more and more was so inspired by your story and felt like I have so much to learn. And just like that acronym, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I started to think WWCJD. What would oh, wow. CJD do? Oh, I, wow. I swear oh, to God. Yeah. As moms, and you know, we're in the middle of COVID right now. It's exhausting. We're constantly on, you know, it's long days. But then, you know, it's you you've gone through that and you are in a place where you have such amazing, kind-hearted, generous, grown adults, you know, that you raised. And that's because of the heart and the resilience that you showed every day. Um, and so I'm learning from that. Like just, just the other day I was vacuuming and I would say the 
maybe the old me or, you know, when I had a former mindset, I would think, oh my God, I got to vacuum again because they're, they're always spilling food, you know. But then I, I just flipped the script and I was like, I have a vacuum. I, you know, there, there are people who do not have that. There are people in other countries that they're getting on their hands and knees and they're using rags to clean the floor. And so who am I to think that, you know, I don't have enough or I'm a victim in some way. I have to show up for my kids. And if I, if I look at every little thing, even something as minuscule as that, as an opportunity that I have the I have my hands and legs, you know? And so I think if moms step up to the plate in that way with everything that we do, that takes our, our time and our energy and our heart show up, then, then you reap the rewards. Then you feel like just, you know, unstoppable as an individual and you raise stand up children like you do. That's it. I, I think to, to sum it up in one sentence, as a mother, we have to be intentional in our effort. Right, exactly. I wanted to ask you if you could lead us through one of the prayers that you say on a daily basis. I would just, I'm just curious to hear it. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I thank you for this day, one we've never seen before, have yet to see again. Lord, I ask that you allow us to return home safely in the same manner in which we left, that you send a hedge of angels to cover us with protections from the top, the bottom, to the left, and the right. These things we ask for in the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and may all the saints signify by saying, Amen. 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 That's our traveling prayer. Wow. The car didn't start unless that prayer was said. Oh, wow. (laughs) I love that. See, these rituals, they just build you up, you know, and it's, and you, you learn from others. And so I just feel like I've grown so much from learning from you. And I'm glad that we've, you know, embarked on this friendship because this is going to be lifelong for me. Yes, absolutely. You call me. Yeah, I will. (laughs) (laughs) I will. I will. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? Don't allow anyone to set a limit to your dreams. Dream big. Yes. It's now time for Mom Hall when we share products we love. Is there a product that you feel has been just a life changer for you lately? A bottle of water. I'm really, I'm really, really serious. I'm very very serious. Water. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And and I mean, I even have a parable that I discuss about water, but water is a life giving source, a life changing source. In order to be saved, you have to be immersed in water. In, In order to be nourished, you need to drink water. Water cleanses us water. Um, And I told Chase, for me, if I had to choose an element for him, he reminds me of water Mm. because water always finds its way. As an ice cube, it's strong and it can keep things cold for you. But that same element can put out fire. Water always finds its way. For an example, suppose you had a, a leaning rock and you poured water down it you would assume that the water would go straight, but if there's a bump in the road, the water might go around it in order to get to where it ultimately needs to go. But for me, as I said, Chase is an element. I would look at him as water because water always finds a way to get to where it needs to be. So yes. a product I endorse is simple, but it would be water. 
That's amazing. Yes. And it's, it's so, it's like back to the basics. That's all we need. Chase, do you have something like that? It's not going to be as spiritual as my mom's. Yeah. But um, I recently got a pull-up bar. Okay. Uh, so what I'm understanding that we have to abide by these COVID-19 rules and stuff like that, but you can still find creative and innovative ways to work out. So I purchased this $30 pull-up bar in my room and it allows me to, you know, get right a little bit. So I'll definitely say, uh, and I guess endorse to still try to get your grind in however you can yep. for as long as you want to or for as little as you want to. No, that's, that's really good advice. And I mean, you just, you remind me of my husband because when we first got married and we were living in our apartment together, that was like one of the first things that he bought <laughs> was a pull-up bar. And yep. I was like, okay. So it was just hanging over the door. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I love it. And, um, and what's next on the horizon for both of you? For me, I'll say the next thing is just successfully getting this master's degree next year. That's mm-hmm. the biggest thing I'm excited about. And I'll see wherever God takes me from there on. Yes. I mean, well, you have the Nobel Peace Prize. It's going to be yours soon. <laughs> and <laughs> you already have this uh, Sugar Bowl win. I mean, you you are on your way. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And what about you, CJ? Um, Man. I want to be healthy and live to be 120 years old. Yes. Because I want to be able to witness my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren graduating from college. I want to be able to share my wisdom and my knowledge and my words and my story and my life with them, which also is a purpose for the book. My biggest two goals right now is getting my book out and um, making it to the NFL. I mean, we have... No doubt. No doubt at all. It's yours. Um, and where can you know my listeners find you? Coach CJ on all social media. Coach and then CJ is spelled C-E-J-A-I. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, website, all forms of social media. Coach CJ. Perfect. And what about you, Chase? Uh, for me, my name is kind of used a lot, a lot so I had to get a little creative. Uh-huh. You could just type in I underscore and then chase more on all platforms. And I'm pretty sure you'll find me there. Great. Great. And any parting thoughts that you want to share? I just really appreciate this opportunity and for you being able to show how powerful and wonderful mothers are because y'all truly are the backbones of society and literally the bearers without y'all going through the nine month process, getting on that table, it wouldn't happen. So I just want to champion you for being able to champion other women and to highlight how strong they are. I really appreciate this opportunity. You're definitely moving in an excellent direction and I'm excited for whatever else happens because this is beautiful, truly. Thank you. Thank you so much. This, I mean, that means the world to me and I feel like I have um, a new family that's backing me up, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. We got you. We got you. Same here. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. I'm just, thank you so much. Thank you both so much. Thank you. If you're still in awe right now, so am I. CJ Taylor has done an exceptional job raising her three children to go against the odds and be successful, and most importantly, help kids in underserved communities go out and do the same. As they say, there's truly no dream too big.
head over to my show notes by visiting thatstotalmomsense.com and watch the press videos about CJ and her kids. They are so compelling and you'll hear sound bites from Kylan as well. He promoted his book, A Dream Too Big on Good Morning America with Michael Strahan, the Hallmark Channel, NBC News, and ABC. Chase's story is so beautifully filmed and captured by the Children's Defense Fund, where he was awarded a scholarship. As always, follow me on my Instagram. My handle is Kanika Chada Gupta, and that's spelled K-A-N-I-K-A-C-H-A-D-D-A-G-U-P-T-A to learn more about my distinguished guests and the topics that I cover to help parents problem solve. Remember, always trust your mom's sense. Stay strong, Supermamas. See you next time. That's total mom sense.